Hello and welcome back to TRSI, the right side here. Uh, it's me, Michael Dwyer, and today I'm being joined again by our good friend Ed West, who is speaking joining us from the Metropolitan Centre of the World, London, one of the world's two global cities. And, uh, and we're going to be talking today about uh, Ed's book, The Diversity Illusion, not Delusion, if you're Googling this afterwards to order it on Amazon. Not Heather MacDonald book, The Diversity Illusion. And also, how it went wrong, but also how we can fix it. Very upbeat, it is here, that we have solutions. So listen, Ed, what I'd like to do, for those who haven't read it yet, because I'm sure they'll be rushing out afterwards to get to Amazon, how you, why you came to write the book in the first place, but also sort of give us a, a, a chronology of how England became diverse, how the diversity evolved, and how the, the policy or the attitudes of official Britain evolved with it and where we are today. And why you see that this is a problem or, or what problems that, that, that it has created for Britain. Uh, I don't know why I decided to write it. And looking back, uh, probably wasn't the wisest thing career-wise. It was sort of basically career sabotage um, in some ways. It was actually going to be called Diverse Delusion at one point, but we changed it to Illusion. I don't know why, actually. I can't even remember. But there's a list of titles, and then obviously Heather McDonald's got a book. But um, uh, yeah, it started right. I started writing around 2009, 2010, when I was writing blogs at Telegraph. It was that immigration started to become more of a political issue. And um, I just, I don't know, the more I thought about it, it was, the more it seemed obviously like an unwise, very radical thing we were doing, and something I hadn't really thought through probably. Uh, and it wasn't really seriously discussed. I mean, immigration since, well, actually now we don't talk about it, it about coronavirus or Brexit, but up until 2016 and Brexit sort of took the pressure off a little bit psychologically, it was, became an issue that was always in the papers. But until about 2004, maybe, it was very, it was kind of quite taboo and it was still taboo for a few more years before it started becoming much more of an issue. Um, and so what happened was basically... In the period from about 1990, basically as soon as Labour got into power, immigration levels started going up hugely. Um, uh, sort of unprecedented record levels of immigration, you know, in the hundreds of thousands a year. So this is after uh, 1997? Yeah, and so, yeah, then around 1999, it went up a little, even a bit more. Then it became more of an issue. In 2004, the, uh, the uh, East, Central and Eastern European countries allowed into the EU, and Britain and Ireland and Sweden said, fine, you can come and work here. Immediately the other countries, but breaks in it. Um, then there was a huge, huge influx of mainly Poles, uh, and that sort of changed debate because it made it a bit more acceptable uh, to discuss it because it wasn't so much about race because most immigrants were uh, white. Um, and so Trevor Phillips, who had been, who I'm quite critical in the book, but has since become, I think, a very, uh, uh, you know, reasonable and, and moderate uh, sort of voice who you know, is not unafraid to, to say things that upset people. Um, he, he, you know, he raised the issue, so it is fair enough that um, people are worried about immigration because it's kind of unprecedented, this level. Then um, David Kudahart wrote this uh, essay for, for Prospect, and he's a sort of uh, a left of centre. So, yeah, he's left of centre. He was saying that, you know, the things we like most about uh, social democracy, the reliance on solidarity, uh, and trust, uh, a willingness to sort of give up for your fellow men, and that conflicts with diversity. 
Sorry, just, to be, just for the point of information for the listener, Trevor Phillips at the time was the, or has been the chairman. He was the chairman, the, he was the head of the Commission for Racial Equality. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what it is now. It's, you know, one of these quangos and they, every so often the government says, we'll get rid of them and they end up merging them and they somehow end up getting bigger and bigger, whatever happens. So, um, but he was, you know, and that has its own sort of history. Uh, but yeah, he's quite an independent sort of heterodox thinker, so he'll say things that you know, you're not supposed to say. So anyway, he was one of the, he he was quite uh, one of the I think one of the most prominent people who people listened to who said actually you know that's it's a it's a subject worth talking about. Um, and David Nadar, this is, essay is called Too Diverse Question Mark, which is still on. Mm-hmm. And I read that I thought wow that kind of articulates what um, what I think is just the sort of the sort of conflicting values people want. They want they want the excitement of diversity and they want the maybe the choice of it that comes with it uh, and to some extent the glamour and, and the and you know obviously economic reasons for it but these you know I thought that these are all sorts of Thatcherite arguments really aren't they um, and there's people on the left who are making them it doesn't make any sense so these these two values of sets of values obviously clash and you know the thing I mean my kind of worldview is I don't really want to live in a very, very exciting area. I want to live in an area where, I, you know, people trust each other or they know the neighbours. I think that's obviously, that's a much better way to live. I don't want to live in a, in a society which is hugely unequal, where, you know, the, at one end of the, there's the nightmare bit image of, sort of Brazil with its, you know, gated communities, but you have uh, also the United States. I want to live in a place that's somewhere more like Denmark or, you know, Netherlands, a kind of slightly... I suppose like boring Northern European social democracy where you don't worry about these things and there's a sort of sense of um, solidarity between people. But I thought, you know, immigration is, uh, is obviously going to erode that and that seems to me an issue worth talking about it. But the only people really talking about it, they're kind of crazies really, you know, people below the line, commenters. Um, I mean, it did become more of an issue politically when the BNP briefly sort of rose to power. And the BNP, I mean, the fact that people were even paired to vote BNP, they were such a like <laughs> straight from central casting villains, such a repulsive party with a, a sort of um, an unvarnished association with neo-Nazi groups. Uh, even they could manage to, because people would just felt sort of sense of desperation because there was, there was such a huge um, increase in immigration, especially in certain areas like East London, where there was huge amounts of, uh, you know, what used to be called white flight, which is demographic, demographic change, secondary migration. But, uh, huge numbers of people changed because the London, the face of London's really, really changed over twenty-five years. Drastically well, uh, changed. Just for the, for clarity, Sunter, we're, we're using the word we've used the word diversity a lot here. But are, is this simply just another word for foreigners? More foreigners? What does diversity mean? Well, I mean, it means not. I mean, it means I suppose the more ethnic difference between the population. That is one thing. So, I suppose. Diversity is one thing, but it's not, if you have sort of an Irishman and a Pole and a German and, you know, together, that's not really diversity because they're all white. So diversity really means non-whites as well. In America, diversity specifically means black in reality, because when they say not enough diversity in this organization, they mean African-Americans underrepresented. So diversity tends to mean not just diversity, but it also means a quality of diversity. So we have diversity, um, but every group gets to get slightly represented in the same way. And this has never happened in any society in history. It's, it's almost impossible as a concept. Uh, and the more I read about it, the more I thought this is, 
you know, our entire political philosophy, we're trying to build a society which is basically utopian. It's never been done. And every attempt to do it has succeeded and failed in sort of spectacular manner. Um, the idea that you build a society which is uh, very diverse, while also very equal, and in which people won't vote along racial lines or religious or whatever lines, that's just never happened. And, you know, so all the arguments people say, well, you know, the Islamic world in the Middle East was very diverse, it was very tolerant, and it was very diverse, and they lived in peace for a long time, and it was tolerant to a certain extent, you know, you could be executed for converting to the wrong religion, but by the standards of the day, it was more tolerant in Europe, but it was not democracy. And as soon as democracy comes into these diverse societies, chaos ensues, you know, as we saw in Iraq, but we saw it all across Europe in the 20th and 19th century. Okay. Uh, you know, my own experience of, um, you know, growing up from a mixed English-Irish background where the, you know, the Irish Catholic population in England was quite small and it wasn't, it didn't, it wouldn't, it didn't become a permanent sectarian um, issue like in Scotland where there's much bigger, um, and obviously Scotland's more culturally linked to Ireland than ways England is. Mm. Um, that's not like to blame Irish people, you know, for creating sectarianism, it's just a matter of numbers. Um, if a population is quite small in number, then it's not going to become a separate sectarian community. It's just going to basically integrate into that population, whether or not they want to. Um, you know, and then you have the catastrophic example of Northern Ireland, uh, which along with sort of, you know, places like Lebanon or Fiji, where there are two groups and neither group has real demographic control, or, you know, Israel, until recently. Then you just have absolute, you know, it's just disastrous. No one would make that a sort of role model for society. And yet, we sort of, sort of casually say, no, you know, we can have almost endless immigration. Um, and that's not going to be an issue, especially since, you know, this was the other issue, and it still is an issue, that a huge num a large numbers of these migrants work up works, particularly religion. And um, a religion which historically has been, if not in conflict with Christian Europe, then at least was the sort of the great other. Uh, and the idea that this would not lead to religious conflict, um, even in the quite secular society, because, you know, you can have a secular society but people don't believe, and you still have sectarian or religious violence. I mean... I don't think you know, the, the UVF or, were exactly huge, great believers in you know, forgiving God, were they? But that can still happen. You, 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 the date you, you, you identified 97 and then 2004 as the... Yeah. But in the book, you, 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 start, you, 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 you don't start there. I mean, we, uh, in a sense, I mean, Britain has been, a, relatively speaking, in comparison to other European countries, perhaps, a, a diverse place for quite a long time and because of empire even back in the Victorian era in cities like Liverpool, like London and Liverpool there would have been black populations and mixed with and, okay it's a different kind of diversity you've had Huguenots and Palatines and yeah Eastern European Jews and whatever coming in but it's in the I suppose just in the 30s you see the first move you have people coming in from the northern India Coming, the first but then after, yeah, after the Second World War, really, and I think in the book, you, Windrush as a, is a, a kind of a symbolic moment in the yeah. beginning of this. It's a new change. country. It's a completely new country. I mean, they, you know, there have been all ports throughout, throughout history have always had migrant populations, different communities, that thing. So, you know, you would have had very small numbers of uh, uh, non-European migrants in the 19th century and a few before in places like London, Liverpool, Newcastle, Cardiff would have had quite a few. Um, but these are tiny, you know, tiny numbers. I mean, one of the things is, I think since the book, the book came out in 2013. I mean, I think I've, 
I've lost the argument so much that I think even even at the time it was a controversial kind of ooh, weird thing to say. But I think now I'm just completely uh, lost. I mean, even since in the last three or four years, the thing is in BBC historical drama, they will always show if it's Britain in the past, so the 16th century or 19th century, it will always be multicultural. It'll be yeah. the school will be a third back, and uh, you know there was one where there's the other day uh, about the Guy Fawkes conspiracy and. Uh, you know, again, it's sort of, it was kind of strangely multicultural group of people trying to hide from the authorities in, in King James's England. So this is a kind of re, a rewriting of our history. It's very strange, but uh, it's just considered weird to notice this. Like, why is this happening? But no, I mean, Britain was very, very unmulticultural historically. I mean, even compared to, I mean, certainly compared to the great empires of Central Europe or the Middle East, where you would have had cities with huge numbers of different groups. Um, mm-hmm living, you know, you want to place, you know, the empire of the Tsar and, and the Habsburgs and, and the Ottoman Empire, these all, they all had very, very multicultural cities. In England, uh, the countries of Northwest Europe were very undiverse, partly because we're sort of on the edge of the world. Um, partly being an island meant there wasn't, um, there was sort of more, I suppose, protection from that. But no, England historically has had very little immigration until the Second World War. So the, the wind rush is what sort of, um, becomes the iconic moment. So after the war, uh, for various reasons, the whole world was also opening up to technology. Um, uh, and migrants from the West Indies came to do jobs here. And obviously there had been a war and, and people from the empire had fought um, for Britain and quite reasonably felt they were part of Britain uh, and, and felt that they had a perfect right to come here. And and then uh, after West Indian migration, there came immigration from South Asia. Uh, now it's slightly different because South Asians uh, didn't really feel themselves British in the same way the Jamaicans did. They weren't really, um, you know, all sort of the poll, sort of, uh, polls at the time, surveys asked them, do you feel British? Do you think your children are English? And the overwhelming majority said no, because, you know, they didn't have that same close attachment that uh, Caribbean people did. Uh, and then obviously num- the numbers started going up a lot and a lot and a lot, and this became... I think it became, it became a lot less popular as numbers increased. I mean, one of my um, arguments, which I make against the sort of, the sort of more pro-immigration crowd is that, it's, oh, it's just perception, it's just the media tell them, but actually opposition to immigration rises in tandem with numbers. People have a pretty good idea of how much immigration is going up or down. People tend to have a very misleading idea of how many migrants are in a country. I mean, if you ask people how many Muslims there are in each of their countries, people would vastly over uh, estimates it just because these are conceptual ideas people can't really uh, think about um, in an analytical way but they do have a, a sort of feeling of how things are changing so when there is high migration it tends to become very unpopular this happens in, in pretty much all countries so as the 60s went on migration became much more of an issue in Britain became very unpopular um, there were you know things like the, there were famous race riots which have kind of been remembered in a very strange way, uh, in a kind of what very one-sided way, which is part of the sort of the story of diversity. Um, and then obviously this sort of basically ended with the restrictions throughout the 60s and 70s, um, which basically put an end to migration. I mean, Britain was kind of quite a failing economy anyway. Not many people were rushing up to come here, but there was a basically a great pause from that first wave of m- migration. Uh, which lasted until Blair came along, and then there was a much, much, much bigger um, wave of migration, which is when I started, you know, writing the book, thinking in this that, is not a good idea. 
in that, that that particular period, though, in the sixties and seventies, it's you said you know the, you had the race riots, which you said the, the accounts of it, which have been one sided. But when you these, it seems to me that when you you see the interviews, you read the accounts, uh, the box pops, whatever. That was at least in some part a fairly unvarnished, old fashioned racism at at work in in the attitude to oh, yeah. the people coming in to the and you mention at least twice you re, you, you you make reference to Enoch Powell in the book. Now a criticism that is a whole I think I must have a whole chapter in fully. Well yeah, but I'm just I'm I'm, I'm talking about the, the, the particularly about the yeah. uh, the the statement the, the rivers of blood the famous rivers of blood speech. Yeah. It a, a criticism that has been or, I don't. I suppose yes, a criticism, but an observation that has been made. If we're talking, if we want to get on to, I want to talk about. Is it, the reason I'm bringing it back to this is because, in a sense, it seems to me that it's at this time that the official that we see the beginning of an of an official understanding on how to deal with the way we talk about this issue or the way we don't talk about this issue. And one of the criticisms made of Powell is that by making that speech. And then being associated, perhaps, the same with the Docker strike and the rise of, say, white politics, far-right politics in London in the 70s, the success of the BNP in the 70s, which, was a, which in some ways seemed to be associated with, with Powell, even though Powell was a Tory and then a unionist. Yeah. That he made it impossible for other people to talk about the subject. That he made that by by the language that he used and the way that he approached it, he 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 made it toxic. That inevitably anybody else that wanted to talk about issues about immigration or integration or diversity was going to be tarred with this brush that they were just racists, and that that created a a long a longer term problem that made that so people like yourself were going to find it that the the people in the seventies and the eighties who could effectively talk about this, that it became this toxic subject. I mean, the, the speech was definitely inflammatory and it was supposed to be, you know, I think he designed it to be inflammatory. He said before it was going to create waves. Uh, I mean, when you're talking about issues like this, to use classical imagery uh, in that classical language, in that style is obviously going to be, I mean, I think it, afterwards he regretted because he actually got the classical reference wrong. It wasn't the Roman who saw the river. With, so he actually, as a classical scholar, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. But I mean, I think, I think that issue, it was always going to be toxic. I mean, Auschwitz made this subject toxic. I don't think it was ever going to be non-toxic. I mean, when, I, when people say, oh, you know, Enoch Powell, the kind of people in Britain say, oh, Enoch Powell made it impossible to, you know, just criticize immigration. They're the sort of people, they're exactly the kind of people who don't want anyone to criticize immigration anyway. So um, I didn't think it was ever going to be it was ever going to be possible to talk about it, just because the way that the, cult, the world culture, especially the American influence culture, was moving after the war. You know, there's such horror at nationalism and racism, mm. um, uh, and anything to do that suggests any amount of, you know, the language of you know white men and black men and having a whip hand. That was that's almost guaranteed to provoke re- revulsion in anyone born after sort of 1940. Anyone who's lived through the aftermath of the Second World War, and we witnessed the civil rights movements and South Africa and these great, you know, these are great iconic stories of our time. 
I think, it, you know, however you phrase that, if you said, by the way, um, you know, there's huge demographic changing happening in Britain and uh, we're going to end up like America, which just had, you know, these riots after Luther King's death. I'm not sure anyone could have rephrased really that without. Is there a the, difference between multiculturalism and diversity? If you're talking about people advocating for diversity or, or advocating for multiculturalism, or, and is perhaps... Okay. For example, if you were to break down uh, the populations in the United Kingdom on the basis of religion, yeah. the most successful people, educationally, uh, employment, wealth, capital, uh, not getting involved in drugs, not being in prison, etc., would be Jews and Sikhs. Yeah. They're the two most successful groups. And they tend to be exemplary civic uh, exemplary civic groups uh, citizenship is very important to them so you could say well all those these very poor Jews come into the East End in the 1880s 1890s 1900s but within a couple of generations they have integrated into the population and they're now disproportionately contributing to the mm. to the society is it uh, not all cultures? Is it possible that maybe the issue is that not all cultures are capable of integration, or that it's a it's a question of time? Uh, uh, I think. I mean, one of the things problems we have is once once the issue becomes it becomes so sentimental. You know, there's a campaign and people say, "Oh, I'm pro immigration. Uh, immigrants are good." You know, the, the whole. You know, listen to Hamilton and my kids. It's all about immigrants that get the job done. But you know, there's no such thing as immigrants. Uh, immigrants are just is just a name for the rest of the world, and the rest of the world is so much more diverse than any small country. So you're going to have much, much more of a difference. Um, you know, the barriers between success and failure on each side are going to be so much big, bigger than the average population. The example in Britain. You know, if you say to someone, oh, this area you're moving to is 40% migrants or 20% migrants. I mean, what does that mean? It's a meaningless term. No one would actually say, okay, I'm moving here or I'm not moving here. You want to know more about who's, who's living there. Yeah. But American migrants in, in Britain or German migrants in Britain tend to pretty much all be professionals. You know, less, fewer than 1% are in social housing. They are basically a sort of a global elite who, who move from place to place. They're, they're you know, the the average of their population is much different to, for example, you know, Romanian migrants or Polish migrants. And the other end, Somali migrants, 80% tend to be in social housing, tend to be associated with all sorts of terrible um, social problems associated with them. Um, you know, so there are so many different uh, outcomes on average between guys. And in the middle tend to be, you know, the white British population who tend to be somewhere in the middle, probably slightly lower in terms of education, slightly higher in terms of employment. Uh, and this is the same in all countries. The problem is, because of the way we're sentimental about it, when, when a group does well, it's great. Congratulations to the group. You know, look at that amazing Chinese work ethic or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it celebrates. When a group does below average, and when a group is disproportionately bad at school or commits more crime or such and such, then that is the problem with society. That is the problem with the, the majority, in other words. Um, but that's why, you know, the whole... I think the way that diversity becomes this great faith, uh, which we're all supposed to believe in, it takes away people's ability to say some, just to be an 
honest in any kind of conceivable way. I, I just think we, these taboos are erected. You know, in America, the whole talk is of, you know, white privilege, white privilege. Or if you look at any uh, sort of um, study of incomes or any other outcomes, almost there are like two dozen different ethnic groups in America who do far better than the white average. White Americans don't do particularly well on average. Mm-hmm. They just happen to be better than some groups, including black Americans who are sort of a sacred group amongst progressives. Well, I, and not to be picky, but even if you, if you, if you talk about black Americans, yeah. you have to divide that up. Because if you're talking about, say, for second generation black Americans who come from the Caribbean, yeah. they will outperform the average. Sure, and it's the same here. People from when you're talking about Nigerians, Nigerians will out considerably outperform the average. So, particularly uh, people recently immigrants. It, so, it, which is just a point that we like to make because exactly. I mean, even it even speaks the, against even the racist narrative, shall we say? Even in terms like Africa, okay, talking about African outcomes in England, even those are completely meaningless because people from certain ethnic groups in West Africa, you know, Yoruba and Igbo, are so far ahead of the average, uh, while other groups are, are way below. So, I mean, the problem we have is that we, we can't accept diversity without the idea of equality. Um, and diversity policy are just contradictory. They, they cannot happen. It never has happened. I mean, diversity used to mean inequality. People talk about diversity of talents amongst people. That was what conservative politicians used to talk about in the 18th century. What they meant was not everyone is, you know, as talented as, as each other. Not everyone is as driven. We all have different qualities. These two things are completely incompatible. So I think it, trying to build society around two completely incompatible goals almost drives people insane because they cannot make any logical arguments. They cannot oh, square these oh, two Okay, ideas. right, okay, so I, I, I'm getting it, maybe a better sense of, so one of your core problems therefore, if I can put it this way, in, to put two things together. First of all, you're saying is, it's not, it's not simply a question of immigration, but it's also, it's a question of Volumes and the size of the of the of the change, the demographic changes within a very short period, which is increasingly problematic. It's not just small numbers over a long period, but large numbers in a short period. And this diver- when you bring in, you create create a diversity which hadn't previously existed, and this in and in a society which also plays a very high value on equality. The diversity and equality are are mutually. Ex- in a sense, mutually exclusive, and you, you end up that that will inevitably create contradictions, which will create in, in internal problems within the pro, within policy process, but also within the democracy. You can't yeah. have both, and that that causes tensions. So, is it? Am I right that part of what you're saying is it's not simply about immigration, but the numbers that are involved? Of course, no, I mean. Everything is about numbers, in the ultimately, because the, the number, the volume of a, of a group will uh, affect integration and or affect you know, the nature of a society. Um, I, numbers of matter. There are two I mean, numbers, two, two, two stats that you quote, I think, uh, which is, I think, is interesting. That in a survey in 2002, uh, 42% of white Britons uh, um, polled felt that immigration had been a, a negative, but in 2012, 67 percent 
felt that in that, in that period where you'd had a lot, large amount of immigration, in a period where generally speaking that the perception has been that Britain has become over time a less racist country, but the perception of the of the of of, of, of immigration has become more negative over that period of time. Yeah, I think, but I think that's possible. I mean, it sounds paradoxical. I, mean, I think, I would say since then, perceptions of immigration have probably improved a lot. Um, I think because Brexit has basically swallowed the issue uh, in a kind of strange, paradoxical way, which I one of the ways I find Brexit such a bizarre thing. Um, but also, you, people, you know, people just come to accept things eventually. I mean, you, I, 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 yeah, I'm a are you yeah, aware sorry. of Charles Putman? Yeah, you mean Robert uh, Putman? Sorry, Russ, uh, uh, bowling alone. Yeah, yeah, Robert Putman. Yeah. Rob, sorry. Why did I say Charles? Anyway, I don't know. Is Charles well, Putman a famous person? That sounds familiar as well. Anyway, Doctor Professor Putman. Um, one of the points, he, one of the issues he, he he talks about is the fact, and he's a he's he's a man of the left. I, I don't think he says this with pleasure, but he, one of the things he observes is that as communities becoming more diverse, you see a decline in trust hmm. and an erosion of social capital. And one of the, his central tenets is that one of the things that's central to the, the, the wider happiness of, any, of a society or a nation is the amount of social capital that you have. And this, the metaphor he uses is the decline of the bowling balls. Yeah. So, so, do you think that this is one of the problems that you, that's happening in the UK, that you have a decline in social capital, a decline in trust, that you're, I mean, are you seeing greater levels of, I don't know, ghettoization or? Well, I mean, trust is very hard to measure on a, on a uh, and the surveys are very inexact when they do it. It's really sort of, you know, do you just trust your neighbours and, uh, it's very hard also to link it uh, with particular um, social policies on a national level, immigration. I mean, the general problem that Britain and the United States have um, at the moment is uh, declining trust and faith in shared institutions, mm. um, which is vital for any sort of functioning, successful democracy to have. Uh, would that be linked to diversity? I'm sure to a certain extent, I mean, when there, there is a widening, growing diversity in Western countries that is not linked to immigration as well, which is just there is more diversity of belief and thoughts. In, you know, there, since 70 years ago, there, there have been sort of great cultural revolutions and we all belong to different tribes and we don't necessarily believe the same things our neighbour. Mm -hmm. So we've become much more diverse in that sense. Um, but, you know, ethnic diversity does reduce trust in shared institutions. I mean, that's been, uh, that's not like a wacky fringe idea. So, you know, we do rely on having a political system in which we accept defeat, for example, which Americans uh, are struggling, uh, you know, have more of a problem with, you know, there's lots of chatter, you know, will the Democrats and the Republicans who seem to hate each other so much accept if the other side wins the election, you know, it will be the courts of Biden supporters say they won't. Uh, you know, this is a problem. If you, you have to have like a shared sense of we, you know, you have to think even if the opposition win the election, I've got to accept that. Um, this has happened at the same time as what in the United States, they, with this sociologists, 
observers of conservatives on the right of the one of the problems is that with the growth of uh, the growth of identity politics which which maybe is an inevitable concomitant of increasingly diverse societies and placing a high value on that diversity with the intersectionality in identity politics that what has where previously you had people could have lots of different identities you could be um, a Texan or a New Yorker, you could be a Southern Baptist, or you could be a Jew, but you had a, an overarching super, a super identity, which yeah. was an American. And one of the problems is that that is being lost. You know, uh, uh, that was an interesting thing recently. You know the school, the, I don't know if you the Michaela School? Yeah, yeah. yeah and uh, the, the, the headmistress is... Catherine Bevelson, yeah, she's... Catherine Bevelson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's a good egg. She was she 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 had an interesting tweet I thought in she there, um, where she said we don't do it was, it was about Black History Month, and she said we don't do Black History we do British History, and we have in which there are going to be black people, yeah. but it's British history, and I I thought that was interesting because it's one of the things is the assertion that if because if you don't have that overarching sense of nationality. Or commute that how it's going to be very hard to have a sense of national community. I remember years ago coming across a young girl, a young woman from London, and we're talking about this, and she she said something which I thought was curious. And I asked her, I said, "You do you not feel British or English?" And she said, "I feel more comfortable saying I am a Londoner than I am saying I'm British." Yeah, that's quite a common thing. Uh, yeah, I mean. Part of the problem is, as societies become more liberal, they're more inclined to accept diversity and immigration, but they also become uh, less adept at actually integrating people because their identity becomes weaker. You know, there's, uh, I mentioned in the book how um, you know, the Jews' free school was set up in North London in the late 19th century when these sort of Russian refugees are coming over. Britons established um, older uh, Jewish population, which is originally Iberian, Sephardic. They set up this school because they wanted to, they, were, they didn't want it to be sort of, you know, cause trouble for the Jewish community if these people look very alien or if they couldn't speak English or, you know, if they somehow cause resentment. So they said, the, the idea was, we will take these little Russian boys and we will turn them into English gentlemen. Mm-hmm. And that was their catchphrase. That was the phrase. I think that was Rabbi Sachs mentioned it. And that's such a, a concept, I think everyone would have understood, you know, what it means to be an English gentleman. Um, what it means to sort of integrate in this sense. Um, and when you have a, a sort of simple roadmap of what it means, this is what it means to become this, um, then integration is much easier and smoother. When, when we don't know now, because we're sort of covered with layers of irony and you know, a lot of people, middle-class English people would cringe at the idea of wanting to turn someone into an Englishman. It would be so, it would be so embarrassing. Retrogressive, um, we find it hard, and, it, and it's kind of not very helpful or useful to newcomers who would like to learn the rules. Um, when the rules aren't spelled out, they're all sort of said and uh, done ironically, or um, you know, I mean, this is this is there's nothing that's been done about it. this. Is just the modern world, um, but it well, does make integration harder. And you know, they, I, I sort of mentioned the whole, you know, it went through the, the school system, went through uh, various multicultural experiments and. You know, it came to head to you know, the great Ray Honeyford case in the 80s when he said it was, you know, it's difficult to teach. Uh, the system seems designed not to want to integrate boys from whose parents came from Pakistan. 
um, almost does everything to stop it. And uh, you know, this is great uh, controversy. I mean, now that you know, probably it's come around more to um, his way of thinking that you know, you you've got to have some sort of um, way of integration. But you suppose you've got to have that cultural confidence to do that. And I didn't. I mean, Catherine Bil- Bilsing is kind of unique, and she's got the sort of balls just to say this is how it should be. You know, um, and she's been very successful. She's been very successful, and then people are queuing up to be in the schools. Uh, you know, I'd like there to be more of her and that to be replicated, but it, it comes across a gay kind of, a kind of cultural cringe, you know. But that cultural cringe, I mean, it's not, this is not new. Orwell, I, I, I remember a quote from Orwell, he's talking, he said, more than any other of the great nations of the world, the English intelligentsia hates their country. Now, I don't know if that's true anymore in the sense that I don't think it's only, that's only, only true of the English intelligentsia. I talk to American well, friends of mine who say... I mean, it's, it's only true of America as well now. I mean, yeah. social media is a real door, unfortunately. We all know what each other thinks. But if you have a population coming into a country and the country, like, I think it was the foreign minister of Sweden said sometime, well, Sweden has no culture. Yeah, it's a very strange it, thing to say. Why would you want to integrate, or why would you want to become part of a yeah. culture which has no value on itself, which doesn't consider itself to be anything except basically a, oh, a history of exploitation and rapine and going around the world enslaving people and taking their land and their property and their yeah, freedom? This is why it's, uh, we've got, you know years and years of this ahead of us you know i say in the last i think it was the subtitle was how to solve it in my book the actual yeah. publisher insisted on that and he said insisted on a chapter at the end where i come up with solutions and i said there are no solutions to be honest i mean you, <laughs> you, that was my i wanted to finish on that note because ireland until not that long ago was a remarkably monochrome kind of a place oh. I mean, irish diversity was uh Catholic Irish Gaelic Celts against Presbyterian Scottish Gaelic yeah. Celts. You know, it was, well, his, you know, and then you had the odd blonde Saxon thrown in. That was diversity. Now we have the highest proportion in the OECD of people living in the country who were born outside it. I think 16% of the population was not born here. So now, Having said that, mostly we're talking Poles, Latvians, whatever. Yeah, it's like a different makeup, but um, it's a, it's a very different kind of thing. I, I, if you're looking at ethnicity, the the lar- I think probably the single largest non-European ethnicity are Brazilians, right? Who happen to be, I'd say ninety ninety percent also Christians, Catholics. So culturally, it, it's not quite the same thing. If I was going to say to you, you said how to solve it. What do you say? We're now buying into exactly the same language and rhetoric, which seems to be being imported directly from the United States, ignoring yeah. completely a different history, a different culture, a different context, a different set of problems, a different reality. But these things are being brought in. I think also, frankly, because it's good business for certain people. So, of course, there is an industry there to be made. It's kind, of, it's kind of sad watching it happen in Ireland as well, because it seems to be... Uh, Ireland seems a few years behind us, but 
I just struggle to think if you were Irish and you observed what happened over here, you think that is a template for what I want to do with our society. I mean, I, and like us over here, where Ireland is also Bain's basically caught up in this American cultural narrative, American history in England. You know, my kids learned about three people in history uh, by the time they're eight was Henry VIII, Elizabeth I and Rosa Parks. And we're taught, we're basically taught American history as if it's our story. And it's not, it's nothing to do with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I find it increasingly frustrating, this kind of idea that, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if one in, probably one in four young Brits probably thought we had segregation in, in this country. Um, you know, they think American history is ours. And that's the same thing, the same, basically, it's kind of like a LARPing in a way. So, you know, it's people pretending that they're part of American politics because everyone's watching American politics like it's a Netflix show. I mean, I saw images of there was this one woman, this black woman in Dublin, you know, holding a placard saying, will I be next? Um, <laughs> you know, will I be next? As far as I know, I looked up, I think the guards in, in the entire history of the Irish Republic, the guards have killed, shot and killed one person who was, um, who was firing them with a gun. And that's happened once in a hundred yes. years. Yes. I just and that was heroically fighting, you know, being killed by various gangsters and terrorists. You know, the idea that your chances, I mean, it's just, so, it's just so pretentious and so narcissistic, this idea that this American story, but unfortunately, the exact same thing, I fear, will probably happen in different European countries. Uh, okay. Okay. Because there's just too much, there are too many vested interests in, in it. And it's, if, if for a moment you're going to put your happy, uh, hopeful hat on, yeah, that one, and you're going to say, you're going to, and you're going to say I don't know, I'm, I'm off the top of your head, you're going to say to, to, to people in Ireland, one or two things to do or not to do, or to think or not to think, to try to avoid the worst excesses of what you feel has happened in, in Britain. What would you say we should look to? I would probably just start, I would start, you know, the best thing is start defunding the infrastructure, get rid of the incentives for people to make this, you know, the diversity industry is, you know, it's it's big enough, it costs a lot of money. Um, And it creates this narrative, it creates this story, it produces reports that necessitate the need for more diversity and more money. Um, I would also think about the universities because, you know, a lot of this ideology is spread through um, activist studies, which don't need to be funded. We don't, and, you know, frankly, in the next few years, we won't be able to afford to fund them. Uh, I think a lot of it comes from very unrigorous studies that start, um, you know, cultural studies, you know, as, as they're broadly stated. Um, but I get the impression that Ireland, the, you know, this is, from a political point of view, this is going to be even harder to stop than in England. But I'm not sure. Oh, we're, we're, we, are, we are far more progressive and liberal than you are. But I don't know. The, you know, you get to the point where, I mean, I'm not, I'm not optimistic because I think it gets to the point where once it's done, it's done. And people, uh, you know, once people feel they can't stop something, they sort of feel a sense of despair about it. So, you know, it's just going to happen. Um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, England is going down the path already that the United States has is that I can see us, if you look at the new intake of MPs from the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, you know, Google image of those MPs, we are definitely going down the road of the United States where one party is basically the diversity party and the other party increasingly represents overall 
the sort of majority, um, but especially the working class majority, because the you know the upper middle class are all in favour of diversity, uh, which is what you have in America, which is a terrible, terrible way to run your politics, um, because it just means real bread and butter issues aren't addressed. We just end up endlessly discussing you know, the kind of decorations of society, you know, national anthem and history, who gets, to, which group gets taught at school and, and what you know, the real it, issues don't. What you think at the end of the proms becomes yes. a big and, and you end up with people coming to power on the back of the fact that they represent a group that's very effective. Yeah, and it's kind of boring. You know, it's all, oh, why do conservatives start this culture war? Say, well, why, have you, why did you try to change the proms? Just don't change it. And when, make an issue of it. You know, you, if people want to argue about identity all, all day, I mean, it just becomes just really boring. But yeah. I, I think it's just inevitable because there are just so many vested interests in making this a, a constant issue about identity. I, then occasionally, I don't there are occasional moments when you think, maybe, maybe, a, a prominent member of the progressive left over here recently called for the removal of To Kill a Mockingbird and right. of Mice and Men from yeah. the school syllabus because they 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 weren't worth the hurt that they cause. There was a, a very significant amount of pushback about this on Twitter. But what really gave me a certain amount, I have to say, joy was he got slapped back by Naomi Wolf. And if you if you're a if you're a, if you're in the vanguard of the progressive left and you turn on your Twitter feed and Naomi Wolf is saying yeah. that you, you're going you're going too far and going the wrong way, well that has to be upsetting, isn't it? I'm aware that you have children to collect, that being well, yeah. a particular lifestyle choice that you've yeah. chosen, no, yeah, and yeah. I make no judgment about that. I think that in a free society you should be allowed to do that. So Very I'm going to thank you for your company, and we'll be I'm sure we'll be talking soon. Okay, see you Thanks later. Thanks, Bye bye.